Let's turn our attention there for the sake of time this morning to our text. We're going to read the entire text again this morning. We'll encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, pins the following words. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. You may be seated. Just a brief overview of where we were last week. The first point that I made last week was this. You can rest assured that whatever God establishes, Satan will certainly counterfeit. God has established Christ-like love in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And we see the counterfeit or the antithesis of that love beginning in verse 3 with sexual immorality and impurity, covetousness. Those three things uh, being actions or deeds. And we'll see filthiness and crude joking and the like which proceeds from our mouths, which are also the antithesis of love. It's counterfeit love. Whatever Christ establishes, whatever God establishes, you may rest assured that Satan will quickly counterfeit it and seek to make the counterfeit look like the real thing. Seek to make the counterfeit feel like the real thing. In verses 1 and 2, Paul defined love as being selfless, sacrificial, and forgiving. He says, we as dearly beloved children, we're to exemplify the exact same love which has been shown to us by Christ to others. And after having defined Christ-like love, beginning in verse 3, which is where we were last week, Paul warns us to flee from every expression of anti-love. You see, in contrast to godly, unselfish, forgiving love, that's the world's type of love. Or Christ-like love. The world's type of love is not godly. It is selfish. And it is wanting. It loves only because the object of love is attractive or enjoyable or pleasant or satisfying or, or appreciative. It only loves in return. It's always based on another person's fulfilling my desires, doing for me what I think I need, meeting my own expectations. Worldly love is always reciprocal, giving very little in expectation of gaining much. That's the antithesis of Christ-like love. But Satan counterfeits it and makes that look like the real thing. And we talked about three unloving actions last week in verse 3. We talked about sexual immorality. Uh, The word immorality there is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our English word pornography or pornographic. It includes any form of premarital sex, any form of extramarital sex, homosexuality, pornography, any perversion of God's intended design for our sexuality could be included under the umbrella of sexual immorality, pornea. Any any of the numerous deviations from God's intended design for our sexuality. And I mentioned this last week. You don't have to pray concerning uh, whether or not that sexual morality, godly sexual morality, is God's will for you. 
You don't have to pray about that one. God's already answered that question for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. And Paul says, this is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's clear. This is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And we talked about impurity last week. Impurity carries the idea of that which is unclean or, or dirty. It was used to refer to uh, the pus that gathers around uh, the outside of an infected wound. In the moral realm, it refers to that which contaminates and is repulsive and disgusting. Paul used the exact same word. If you're uh, there uh, in chapter 5, just glance back briefly to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Maybe one page back for you. Paul used the same word, impurity, to refer to the ungodly behavior of the Gentiles who had given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That which is unclean. Impurity. And then the last form of anti-love, as far as deeds are concerned, that Paul left us with last week in verse 3, was that of covetousness. It's the Greek word pleonexia. It has the idea of, of greed, lusting for more and more, never being satisfied with what God has given us. You see, the greedy man or the greedy woman has a lust for more, whether it's money, whether it's material possessions, or whether it's sexual conquest. There's always a want for more. There's, there's, there's an inability to be satisfied with what God has given. Greed is motivated by selfish pleasure apart from God, and it's idolatry because it seeks to find pleasure in something other than God. And I asked you this question last week. I said, you know, what connection, as you look at those three terms there, sexual immorality, uh, impurity, and covetousness, it almost seems like covetousness is kind of out of place, uh, bumped right up next to sexual immorality and impurity. Uh, But in reality, these two sins are but basic expressions of the same basic, I mentioned, human weakness. And it was this. It was uncontrolled appetite. That's what covetousness is. So sexual immorality and impurity are just two forms of man's basic human weakness. It's that we just can't control, because of our sin, our appetites. And there's this continual wanting, continual lusting for more. Young people, don't fall for the lie that sexual purity will be something that you pursue once you're married. Don't fall to to the lie that you will be sexually pure once you get married if you are pursuing sexual impurity as a single person. Hear me loud and hear me clear. What you do single, you'll do married. What you do single, you'll do married. There is nothing magical, there is nothing mystical about the wedding altar that changes a man's heart or a woman's heart. What you are practicing, what you are feeding, what you are loving, what you are listening to, what you are looking at, what you are engaging in, all of those things will cross right over from singlehood to married life. So, be practicing radical purity now. If you're a married person and you're here this morning, you can probably attest to the reality of that statement. And we also though in a married state, are to be pursuing radical, Christ-like purity. A heart that wants to honor Christ. Just keep in mind, single people, what you do single, you'll do married.
Be practicing the right things now. Start pursuing the discipline of radical purity now. Paul continues this morning in verse 4 with three forms of unloving talk. That's what we're going to pick up this morning. The call in verses 1 and 2 is to love like Christ loved, but there's a counterfeit. The counterfeit in our actions and in our deeds is sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. The counterfeit in our language that we see here in the text is filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Look at verse 4. Paul says this. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Uh, The Greek word for out of place there just means not belonging to or not relating to. Those three things, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, they don't belong to our new life in Christ. They're not related to our new life in Christ. Paul goes on, though. Look at your Bible. He says, but instead, what am I to replace it with, Paul? What am I to do in its place, Paul? What am I to pursue in its place? He tells us, instead, let there be thanksgiving. If you can remember back to our study of Ephesians 4.29, we talked about the fact that our speech is nothing more than the presenting symptom of a much deeper underlying problem. You remember I asked the question, uh, does our speech, does it point primarily to a tongue and language issue or does it point primarily to a heart issue? I made the point, as you're probably well aware, that our speech points primarily to a heart issue. It is but a presenting symptom of a much deeper underlying heart issue. Tongue problems are really heart problems expressed. Question. Anybody take me up on my challenge to memorize Luke 6.45? It's a simple little verse. You can probably have it memorized before you leave the parking lot this afternoon. Luke 6, 45, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Tongue problems are just heart problems expressed. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus said, for from within or from the heart, Out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Interesting. Did you notice in that list, and if you didn't, you can go back and check it out later, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, included in that list are both deeds and words but they both come from the exact same place. They're both rooted in the exact same place, and that place is our heart. You don't change a person's speech by just trying to clean it up. You don't change a person's actions by just trying to clean it up. That's like putting a Band-Aid on an amputated arm. Okay? You fix the mouth, and you fix the actions by addressing the heart. By addressing the heart. If all we do, if you think of an apple tree, if all you do is go and you cut the apple tree off at its base, but you leave the trunk and the root system in play, over time, what will you have? Another apple tree. Because you haven't addressed the vitality of it. You haven't addressed where its life comes from. And that is the roots. For us spiritually, that is our heart. 
For from within, out of the heart of a man, come all forms of immorality, both in deed and in speech. Each of these three words here in verse 4 that Paul uses to describe sinful, unloving, impure speech are unique words. They're unique in the fact that they're only used here in verse 3 in the New Testament. Three words, the Greek word for filthiness, the Greek word for foolish talk, the Greek word for crude joking, only used here in the New Testament. It's interesting also to note that filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking all refer to a dirty mind or a dirty heart just expressing itself in vulgar talk. Paul says this kind of language is to have no place in a Christian's conversation. This kind of language is to have no place in a Christian's conversation. It's unloving speech. And let's look first at filthiness. That's A on your outline if you're taking notes. The word translated filthiness there, it carries the idea of that which is shameful. Filthiness is that which is shameful. Refers to any indecency or obscenity or dishonorable thing that would roll off our tongues. It comes from the same Greek root word as as that which means disgraceful, shameful and disgraceful. Look ahead for a moment to verse 12. Look in your Bible. Paul says, for it is shameful, same exact word there as translated potentially filthiness in your Bible here in verse 4. It is shameful, verse 12, even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Shameful, disgraceful, filthy. We are to have a vocabulary that is characterized by speech that builds others up, by speech that points others to Christ, by speech that makes much of the gospel, by speech that that shows a congruency between the way that we live and the master that that we say we serve. We're not to have filthy mouths. We're not to speak about things that are not that are not useful for the hearer, that don't bring grace to the hearer. Now, all you have to do is turn your television set on to see filthy speech run rampant. All you have to do is is open publications like the National Enquirer or just be checking out at the grocery store and to see the headline, to see filthiness expressed in printed words. We as Christians are to have conversation. We as Christians are to use words that are not filthy in nature, but instead point us to how uh, back in verse 4, or in chapter 4, verse 29, will be good for the one who hears, building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to the hearer. The second thing that Paul mentions here is foolish talk. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the word foolish has the idea of silly. Foolish or silly talk. A foolish talk comes from two words in the original language, moros, uh, which means dull or stupid, and logos, which means word. So a dull word, a stupid word. Uh, but that Greek word moros, it's, it's actually where we get our English word moron from. But it's interesting to note that the concern here, Paul's concern here in uh, chapter or in verse 4, is, is not that of intelligence, but rather with morals. In the Bible, the fool is not someone who's mentally deficient, but rather someone who's morally deficient. 
because he or she ignores God's word. Moros. Where we get our English word moron. Not meaning intellectually deficient, but morally deficient. We're not to use words that are morally deficient. The words foolish talk refer to the one, the person, the individual who makes light of God's high standard of morality and purity. Thinking that it's somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down what God says is praiseworthy and ennobling. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Be another great verse to memorize. A little more lengthy. but It'd be a great verse and I'd commend it to your memory. Paul says this, probably familiar to many of you. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything that is worthy of praise, think about these things. And if we are to be thinking about those things, which are true and admirable and noble and lovely and worthy of praise and excellent, then we are also to speak about those things which are true and praiseworthy and admirable and noble and pure. If we're to think about them, then we are also to speak that way. Those things should fill our speech. And so just ask yourself, sitting here this morning, are the words that fill my mouth true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent and worthy of praise? Lastly, and I think this phrase, crude joking, probably gives us the emphasis of the first two, filthiness and foolish talk. Paul, lastly here, C, says, no crude joking. It's the Greek word eutrapelia. It literally means to turn quickly or to turn easily. It carries the idea of quickly turning something that's said or done, no matter how innocent it may have been, into something obscene or suggestive. It's taking something innocent and and turning it into something that is suggestive or obscene. It's the talk of a person who uses every word that might have a double meaning to display his immoral wit by way of sexual innuendo. Is that flavor a little bit now what filthiness might mean? Christians should not joke about sex for the same reason that we should not joke about God because it is a sacred subject. That's where Paul's going. That's the context here. Paul's just told us that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness are to have no place in the life of a Christian. And then he follows it up by three forms of unloving talk which I think fall right on the heels of verse 3. Paul's talking about filthiness. He's talking about uh, our language not being characterized by by dirty jokes, by talking about sex or, or God's intended design for our sexuality in a flippant way, making light of it, making joke of it by use of innuendo and the like. The sexual relationship should be reverenced among God's people, not degraded and made light of. I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again. One of the greatest indicators of the character of an individual is to take a few moments and to observe what they laugh at and what they weep over. What do we laugh at 
and what do we weep over? That will tell you how inoculated we have become to the world's patterns of speech. What do we think is funny when we see it on TV? What do we think is funny when someone else speaks in a filthy way? Maybe that we wouldn't, because of God's restraining grace, say ourselves. Maybe we would say it ourselves, but even if we wouldn't, we thought what they said was funny. Brothers and sisters, this ought not be true of us. There is to be no filthiness, no foolish, silly, moronic talk, and no crude joking proceeding from the mouth of a believer. I was thinking about this this week in my study. I wonder how much more carefully every word would be chosen if we remembered the fact that God hears every word. And let me take you a step back. Not only does he hear every word, but he knows every word before it proceeds from our mouth. He knows our hearts. Our words are just our heart expressed. If we remembered, if we remembered that nothing we do, no action that we partake in, takes place apart from the sight of God, and if we remember that every word that proceeds from our mouth is heard by God, I wonder how it might change our our actions, and I wonder how it might change our speech. Hebrews 4.13 says that, that God sees everything, and we are all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let me, let me take this back to a, to a practical sense. As we're sitting in front of the computer, as, as, we're, as we're letting uh, things fill our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes, just always remember that you're never alone. Nothing you ever do is alone. Everything that we do is done before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees and he hears every word that proceeds from our mouth. Jesus even said, and these are startling words, he said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, the people will give account for every careless. Uh, the, the word there is argos. It just means inactive or idle or useless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Answer me this question. How is it that Jesus says, by your words you'll be justified, or by your words you'll be condemned? It's because your words are nothing more than your heart expressed. It's just a demonstration of your heart. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our words either show or reveal justification, or they deny it. Our words reveal the nature of our heart, either saved and sanctified by the grace of God or evil and idolatrous. There is to be no filthiness, no foolish, silly talk, no crude joking. What are we supposed to do then, Paul? Paul tells us. If we're to put off filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, what are we to put on? I mean, that, that was the, the model for us back in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. We're to put off unrighteousness, and we're to put on the new man created after the image and likeness of our God. So we're to be putting off sexual immorality. We're to be putting off impurity. We're to be putting off covetousness. We're to be putting off foolish talk, 
filthiness and crude joking. Well, what are we then to be putting on? What do we replace those unrighteous deeds and speech with? Paul tells us right here in the text. Look at verse 4. Paul says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Think about this. Would you have chosen thanksgiving or gratitude as the opposite of sexual and verbal sin? If you had to write the prescription, somebody comes to the doctor, they they present symptoms, and you had to write the prescription. If you're thinking about sexual immorality and perverted speech, what would be the prescription you would write for that? Would it be thanksgiving and gratitude? Would that have been the prescription that you would have written? Why do you suppose Paul used thanksgiving and gratitude as the put on here? Let me suggest to you this reason. Sexual immorality and impurity are driven by covetousness, which they are. It's that, that lust, that want, that greed for more, never being satisfied with what God has given me or the position that God has placed me in life if single, then single. If married, then sex in the confines of marriage. Not being satisfied with that is greed, it's covetousness. So sexual immorality and impurity are driven by covetousness. And covetousness is a deep, discontented craving that dominates a life, leading you to go against the will of God. Then it's clear that the opposite experience would be that of thanksgiving. You see, if you're overflowing with thanksgiving to God, then you're not dominated and driven with discontentment at what you don't have or what you think you've been denied. You see, gratitude is what you feel when you believe that God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you believe that God gives you only that which is good for you and withholds no good thing, either single or married. It's what you feel when you trust him. I think that's why verse 20, look ahead, chapter 5, verse 20. Paul goes on and he says, give Thanks. Give thanks when? Say it out loud. Always. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, instead of being involved in immorality or filthy speaking, the believer's mouth should be filled with thanksgiving. Sexual impurity, immorality, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, those are all expressions of self-centeredness. Thanksgiving, on the other hand, is an expression of unselfishness, and it's a recognition of God's generosity. I become covetous when I think that God has withheld something that I think belongs to me. When I'm thankful, I'm recognizing that he's the giver of all good things. An ever-growing attitude of gratitude will certainly make us more content since we'll be focusing more on what we have than what we don't have. But contentment is more than just focusing on what we have. It's focusing on the fact that all we have is by the grace of God. Contentment. We deserve nothing, but in Christ we've been given everything. It's all by His grace. interesting to note too that just like abstaining from sexual immorality is God's will for your life, like you you don't have to wonder if that's God's will for your life. It's explicitly stated 
1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that it's God's will for your life. You also don't have to pray and ask if it's his will that your life be characterized by a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. Because just one chapter later in 1 Thessalonians, you can jot this down, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. A thankful heart, a grateful heart, is the prescription. It's the put on for the unselfish, or for the selfishness, rather, the self-centeredness that we are called to put off, which is expressed in sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, filthiness, and crude joking. Those are all self-selfish, self-directed. Instead, we're to put on a heart of thanksgiving, which is Christ-directed. Let's look at the second and final point on your outline this morning. In verses 5 through 7, Paul gives us two vivid warnings to those who would persist in living in sin. He tells us that the one who persistently lives in sin has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, and the one who persistently lives in sin invites the wrath of God. Here's point number two, the consequence. The consequence for continuing an unrepentant sin is grave. Let me draw your attention to verses five through seven. Look along with me. Paul writes, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, as a result, do not become partners with them. Paul's essentially saying the exact same thing that John said in 1 John chapter 3. Don't turn there. You can write it down, though. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. John wrote this. He said, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices, that's the key word here, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, God, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice, though, of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God, no one born again makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Paul says, he who practices sin has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. You see, God's word is clear, friends, that the person who deliberately and persistently continues in sin has no share or no part in the kingdom of God. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. I mean, It almost sounds like Paul and John had a conversation. I mean, their words are so strikingly similar. It's how we see the Holy Spirit uh, preserving the Word of God. There's congruency in the Word of God. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, there's congruency. Paul says, don't be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters or adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so the question is this, well, well then Paul, do genuinely converted believers struggle with the sins you just mentioned? If it's those individuals that won't inherit the kingdom of God, then the question must be asked, are there truly converted, genuine believers who do struggle with those sins? And the answer is without a doubt. As a matter of fact, in the very next verse, uh, so Paul outlines, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he, he outlines here, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, uh, thieves, adulterers, idolaters, the immoral. He, he outlines those sins. And then one verse later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul turns back to the church in which he's writing, and he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. But, but, you've been born again. Therefore, Put off the old man with his old practices and put on the new man, renewed after the image of his creator. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Truly converted Christians sin in the ways that Paul has outlined in verses 3 through 7. Make no mistake about it. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. As a matter of fact, we are more sinful than we ever dared imagine. If we don't think that we're that sinful, we have a grossly exalted view of ourselves. We are more sinful than we ever dared imagine. And if God were to pull back the curtain and he were to allow us to see our sin the way that he sees our sin, we would be utterly dismayed. We would be appalled. True Christians sin. They sin big time sometimes. But mark God's word. Here's what Paul's saying here. The person whose basic life pattern, the person whose life pattern, style is characterized by the sins that Paul has enumerated. The persons whose basic life patterns do not reflect a growing hatred towards sin. That's what repentance means, uh, by the way. Repentance just means a change of mind about sin. Where I once loved it, I'm now growing in an ever-increasing hatred of it. person whose basic life pattern does not reflect a growing hatred towards sin and a corresponding desire for holiness cannot claim God as his father or the kingdom of God as his or her future inheritance. Doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. Doesn't mean that Christians don't sin big time sometimes. But it does mean that a Christian's life is not characterized, is not marked The basic pattern of our life is not characterized by sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy talk, foolish talk, crude joking, and the like. We're to be putting that away. Paul said this in Titus chapter 2. I I love this verse. You've probably heard me mention it many times. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through, I think, 14, Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, 
And he teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age as we wait for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who loved us and gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. So, Paul, what do you say in there? Well, because of God's grace... In Christ now, sin is no longer my master. In other words, I don't sin because I have to. I sin because I want to. I can say no to sin now because of the grace of God. I can say no to selfishness and all of its, its expressions. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm to put it off and to put on the new man. As I wait, and not only wait, but as I wait eagerly for the appearing of my great God and say, I am waiting for my bridegroom to come and get me. And I want to be found pure when he comes. Just like the bride who stands at the altar wants to be pure for her husband. I'm waiting for him. And I want to be pure for him. I want to be holy for him. I want to be set apart for him. Paul goes on and he says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters, by those who would speak empty words. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In Paul's day, there were those, as there is today, who claimed that, that to be a Christian meant that you could continue to sin and get away with it. I mean, it really doesn't matter. God is a gracious God and God is love and he's really not concerned with what you're doing. It just, you know, are you saved? Do you have a Christian t-shirt and a Christian bumper sticker and a, and a cross around your neck? Then it's signed, sealed, and delivered. Don't worry, you can do what you want. I mean, there were those types of people in Paul's day, just as there are today, who make light of the grace of God and say it really doesn't matter what you do. We, we call that licentiousness, taking advantage of the grace of God. These deceivers used empty words. Uh, The Greek there for empty words means words void of truth. Empty words. To convince ignorant or young believers that they could sin repeatedly and yet still enter the kingdom of God. It'll be fine, they say. You're saved by grace, they say. Sin isn't really that big of a deal, they say. Friends, that's the biggest lie on the face of the planet. And it's the lie that Adam and Eve bought into in the garden. Sin isn't really that big of a deal. It's just a little piece of fruit, after all. No, sin is cosmic treason. All sin, any sin, every sin is a big deal. It's a direct violation. It's a direct affront to the holiness of God. All sin is a big deal. The lie that God turns a blind eye to sin is still alive and well today. Friends, God is kind. And God is patient. More kind and patient than we ever deserved. But don't mistake his kindness and his patience for tolerance. Don't mistake God's kindness and his patience for tolerance of sin. God never tolerates sin. His kindness, his patience, his long-suffering are meant to lead us to repentance. Don't be deceived by those who would speak words void of truth, empty talkers, saying, don't worry, it's just a little sin, it'll be okay. It's not okay. If you ever 
need reassurance that it's not okay. Look at the cross. Sin is never okay. Paul concludes verse 6. Look at it here. He says, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let me reword that for you. Those who practice disobedience attract God's displeasure like a fully lit up enemy target attracts bombs. Those who practice, whose lifestyle is characterized by sin and disobedience, attract God's hot, holy displeasure like a fully lit up enemy target attracts bombs. God's attitude toward the self-driven, pleasure-seeking, perverted love, sexual sin, uh, perverted speech could not be clearer. Yes, God is kind. Yes, God is patient. More than we ever deserved. But his kindness and his patience are meant to lead us again to repentance. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but for those who refuse to repent, it is those who refuse to repent whose lives are characterized by a practice of sin. Those who refuse to repent and turn from their sin, Paul said, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of God's righteous judgment. Every sin without exception must be punished. Paul concludes, and we'll conclude here this morning. Look at your Bible. He concludes by saying, do not become partakers with them. In other words, don't join the world in its evil. Instead, be partners with Christ in righteousness. Don't imitate the world. Instead, be imitators of God as beloved children. Remember, you become like those whom you spend time with, right? It's the principle of relationships. Bad company corrupts good morals. You become like those whom you spend time with. You want to become like Christ? Spend time with him. Fellowship with him in his word. We're not to join arms with the world who tramples the grace of God and lives the unrighteous, unholy life that invites the wrath of God. Let me ask you this question. Are the people that you're spending time with encouraging you to a holy life? Are they encouraging you to a righteous lifestyle? Are they encouraging you by the things they do and the things they say to an unholy life and an unrighteous life? Now, hear me loud and clear. You're never a victim. The grace of God has appeared. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. Who are you yoking arms with? Who are you partnering with? Are they encouraging you to pursue holiness or encouraging you to presume on the grace of God by encouraging you to think that sin isn't really that big of a deal? Remember, sin's always a big deal. If we ever need a reminder of that, we just need to fix our eyes freshly again on the cross because it was at the cross that God displayed his hatred for sin. 
And his hatred for sin was directed squarely at the sinless Son of God, who, unlike us, knew no sin. And it was there, at the cross, a declaration of perfect justice, satisfied by perfect love, that were called out of sin and out of darkness to become the dearly beloved children and imitators of God that Paul begins chapter 5 speaking of. Do you know this God? Are you well acquainted with his Son? 